I love the book of Judges in spite of the fact that it is a story of failures, in spite of the fact that it is a story of sin. And it's a cycle that the people of God enter into, and it's described in, in Judges chapter 2. And so turn back just a page, and I'm going to begin reading it in chapter 2, beginning at verse 7. It says, The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him, and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. The time of wandering in the wilderness has ended. They've entered into the promised land that God had promised to his people hundreds of years before. God drove out the peoples who were living in the promised land so that his people could take possession of the land. And the land was divided up amongst the tribes and they, they moved in and they, they began to build a life for themselves there. In verse 10 it says, after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, Another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them, and they were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders, yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands, Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and their stubborn ways. It's a cycle of sin. It's a cycle described by this, this cycle you see on the screen, where they entered into the promised land and they experienced a time of, of peace, a time of relative prosperity. But very quickly, they became complacent. They no longer loved the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They loved God, but they loved other things as well. Eventually, that time of complacency led to a time of outright sin, where they were worshiping the gods of the nations that surrounded them. And we know that our God is a jealous God, and he won't share our love with other gods. And so, in an effort to draw them back to himself, he brought them into a time of pain. Our passage that we just read talks about raiders that entered into the land, other nations that came in and conquered and oppressed the people of, of Israel, Getting God's, getting them, giving, getting their attention for God. It was painful. It was difficult, these times of oppressions. And the people cried out to God, asking Him to come and help them, to come and save them. And God, in His mercy, God, in His great love, relented. And God raised up a judge, a judge who helped the people to overthrow their oppressors and led back to a time of peace. Now, we talk about a person called a judge. And I know that today, when we talk about a judge, we think immediately of, of a courtroom. 
with a judge that presides over that courtroom, but that's not what we're talking about here during this time in Israel's history. A judge was someone who had two principal responsibilities, two roles. They were a deliverer that helped the, the nation of Israel throw off its oppressors, drive those conquerors, those raiders out of the land. And secondly, they were leaders who would lead the nation after the oppressors were gone. During the judge's lifetime, the people would follow God. But after the judge left, after the judge died, they would revert to their old ways and that cycle of sin would resume again. During the, the time of the judges, this cycle happens 11 times. 11 times the people of Israel go through this, this deadly cycle, this cycle of sin, this cycle of failure, unable to learn from their past mistakes. It's like a, a young boy who's been told by his parents not to reach up and touch the flame on the, the stove because it's hot, it's going to burn you, it's going to hurt. And yet this is a young boy who is curious. It's a young boy who often has to learn from his own mistakes. And so one day as his parents aren't watching, he reaches up and he, he touches that burner. Sure enough, it's hot. Sure enough, he burns his hand and they've got to take him to the hospital, be treated, and it's several weeks before his hand is healed. That boy is still curious. Was that flame really as hot as I remember it? And he sneaks in and he, he touches the flame again. Again, his hand is burned. Again, he has to go to the hospital for treatment. Again, it takes several weeks for that, that hand to be healed. Can you imagine a young boy who would do that twice? not learning from his parents' warning, not learning from the first time he did it, having to go through it two times to learn that lesson? Can you imagine a young boy who takes three times to learn that lesson? Can you imagine a young boy who would take 11 times to learn that lesson? That's the story of Israel. 11 times they go through this cycle. 11 times they fail to learn from their mistakes. 11 times they have to go through all of this again. But even in the midst of this cycle of sin, this cycle of failure, there is hope to be found in the book of Judges because God raises up some honorable characters who bring glory to him. Daniel chapter 11 tells us that those who know the Lord will be strong and will do great things. And there are judges that God raises up who know the Lord, who are strong and who do great things in his name. And one of them is a woman by the name of Deborah. We're going to look at Deborah. She's the only of one of the judges who is a woman. And for that reason and for several other reasons, she's a different kind of hero for the nation of Israel. You know, when it comes to technology, I have always been a bit of a, a late adopter. I have never adopted that new technology until others have used it. And I've seen that it's, it's, it's good, that it's, it's safe to enter into the pool I've always tended to be late in adopting new technology. I remember not being so sure about this email thing. And it wasn't until Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan told me, Lon, you've got mail, that I decided to give it a try. When cell phones came out, I was initially only sold on the safety feature of, of a cell phone. So I got one of those brick flip phones, those Motorola brick flip phones. You remember those? And I got 20 minutes on it. And kids, that's not 20 minutes in an hour. That's not 20 minutes in a day. That's 20 minutes in a month on my contract. <coughs> and I put that phone charged, turned off, 
in my glove compartment in case an emergency happened that required a cell phone. And then I was pretty slow moving from that standard cell phone to a smartphone. Wasn't quite sure I wanted to go that direction. I remember one time we were on vacation in a touristy location. I don't remember where we were, but there's a family who came up and asked me to take their picture. They handed me their smartphone, and then they had to explain to me how to use the camera feature on that smartphone. The look of disgust on the person's face who was showing me how to use it was really quite something. Fortunately, I've got a wife and I've got two daughters who are early adopters. And I feel often like I've got my own tech support crew right at home. Those of you who know Liz, know me, know that I married up. I married up big time when I married Liz. And thankfully, Bethany and Sarah take after their mom. <coughs> but there was one piece of technology that I, I was an early adopter for, and that was GPS. I love getting turn-by-turn -turn directions to the places that we're going to. See, I, I hate getting stuck in traffic. I hate getting caught, caught behind construction, behind an accident. And so I love the, the Waze app on my phone. I love that it gives us the best route to the places we're going based on current traffic conditions. I, I love Waze. A few years ago, I discovered that you could change the voice of the person who's giving you directions to where you're going. You could choose an accent from many different countries around the world. And so I chose to change the voice giving me directions to a British accent. Because when, when somebody's speaking with a British accent, they just sound smarter somehow. They just, <laughs> they sound more intelligent. And so it gave me confidence to know that when I'm getting directions somewhere, I'm gonna get there fast because the person talking to me is just smart. They're just intelligent that way. Then I discovered that you could change the gender of the voice of the person giving you directions. You could have a man's voice giving you directions and you could have a woman's voice giving you directions. And so I changed the voice to a woman's voice because, well, you know, they just sound smarter. <laughs> this morning we're gonna look at Deborah who is a different kind of hero for God's people. And at the end of Judges chapter 3, we find that the nation of Moab has been conquered and, and they made subject to Israel. They experience a period of peace at this time that lasts for about 80 years, which is about the longest period of peace they experienced during the time of Judges. Can you imagine that? 80 years being the longest period of peace that they experienced. Israel at that time, like it is today, is surrounded by nations that are their enemies. And yet 80 years was the longest period of time that they experienced peace. And as we enter into chapter 4, we find that once again, Israel does evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so that cycle begins again. And they fall under the oppression of Jabin, who is king of the Canaanites. And Jabin's principal... Architect of oppression over the Israel people is a man named Sisera, who's commander of the army, who has at his disposal 900 iron chariots. Now, think of an iron chariot as the smart weapon of that day. It's like the drone or the smart bomb of today, it's a, the newest technology used for warfare. And Israel is under oppression, it's, it's cruel oppression, and it lasts for 20 years. The nation of Israel cries out to God, asking him for help. And God sends help, and he sends it in the form of Deborah, the prophet. Now, as a prophet, Deborah 
preaches and teaches the word of God. She's leading Israel. She's holding court. Now, it's not a royal court, the kind where she would have dignitaries come and, and visit her. It's actually a courtroom where she would hear and decide cases. She was known as a wise and godly counselor and leader for the nation of Israel. And so people would regularly come to her asking for help in deciding relational and legal and social cases. In a way, Deborah was very different than the other judges. Not only was she only the only woman judge, but she was also one who led from wisdom and character rather than just sheer military might. The judge Othniel went to war. The judge Ehud carried out an assassination plot. But Deborah counseled and guided the people. She comes closest to being that godly leader of the people instead of just a general. She is a judge who led beyond the battlefield. Which reminds us that God's chosen person is not just the one who rescues the people. They are also the person who rules the people. And of all the judges in the book of Judges, Deborah is the one who comes closest to pointing to Jesus, the one who rescues and the one who rules his people. Deborah was not a warrior. She wasn't the one that God used to, to bring victory on the battlefield. In fact, we see that she comes to uh, to Barak and, and gives God's commission to him. Comes to Barak and says, you are going to be the one who leads the army of Israel into battle against Sisera. It's Barak who will take the troops to the Mount Tabor. 10,000 men to Mount Tabor. And it's Barak who will lead them to victory over Sisera. The ruler is not the rescuer. And the rescuer will not be the ruler. And in the end, neither Deborah nor Barak will have that ultimate, that ultimate honor of defeating the main enemy, Sisera. That will go to someone else. And in that way, this is a very different story than all of the other stories in Judges. In all the other stories of Judges, there's one single human hero. But in this story, there will be three. But as we get to chapter 5, we're going to discover where the ultimate honor goes. The ultimate honor does not go to the one or two or three people that God chooses to use. The ultimate honor goes to God himself who chooses to use people to rescue and to rule his people. Look at Judges chapter 4. It says, Deborah sent, to, sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Now, I know that we are struck by Barak's response to Deborah. We look at this and we, we see perhaps a lack of faith on Barak's part. And in verse 9, we see Deborah say, of course I'll go with you. But because of the course you're taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. Barak has said, I will go, Deborah, but I'll only go if you go with me. And Deborah says that because of that, the honor will not be yours. It's going to be the honor given to a woman. Many people see Barak's response as being timid and, and lacking courage, and, and Deborah's words to him are a rebuke to him. But I, I don't see it that way. 
I see Barack is still going to lead that charge down the hill right into the teeth of, ten, of 900 iron chariots. He's not going to get the honor for it, but yet he is still going to do it. I see Deborah's words as a prophetic statement of faith, prophetic statement of truth, rather than a verdict of Barack's faith. I see Barack as a hero and an example of faith. I see his desire to have Deborah go with him, not as an act of disobedience, but rather as a recognition that this is a godly woman who speaks God's words. Why wouldn't he want her with him? There's a similar situation to this that we see in Exodus chapter 33. The nation of Israel has been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, and it's time to go into the promised land. God and Moses are having a conversation, and God is revealing to Moses what it is that's going to come. And Moses asked God an interesting question. He asked God, will you be going with us into the promised land? He says, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? In other words, God, I would rather be with you in the wilderness than without you in the promised land. It's a picture of faith. It's a saying, this is too much for me unless you do it with me, God. Again and again in this sermon series on snapshots of faith, we are seeing and being reminded that there are things which are impossible for us to do which become possible when God does it through us, in us and through us. And so I think there are three things that we can learn from this exchange between Deborah and Barak. First of all, that Barak shows us that faith is listening to God at every stage of life and in every circumstance. This would be an easy place for Barak to develop selective hearing. To say, God, I'm not quite hearing what you're saying. I'm not quite understanding what you're asking me to do. And so I'm just going to stay here until I I get a clearer picture of what you're wanting from me. I think we also hear that faith is showing courage in the face of humanly overwhelming odds. We need to understand that an iron chariot will cut through an army the way a hot hot knife cuts through butter. 900 iron chariots defeats 10,000 men every single time. And yet in spite of the odds, in spite of the danger, Barak still goes and fights. And then third, that faith is humble. And it's not honor-seeking. Barak obeys God. And he leads his men down that hillside into this battle with these iron chariots, knowing that the victory will not be his. Knowing that he will not get the honor of ruling afterwards. In his faith, Barak is foreshadowing Jesus who though in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing and humbled himself and made himself obedient to death, even death on a cross. At Mount Tabor, Barak goes into battle against an enemy that seems to have all the cards in his favor, 900 cards in fact. But the Lord routed Cicero, Sisera, and all of the chariots, and his men were slain by the sword. Barak's army was no match for Sisera's, but Sisera's were no match for God. And Sisera ends up fleeing his chariot and running, and all of his men are slain by the sword. Sisera had been so secure in his chariots, so certain of victory, and yet in the end he flees his chariot, flees on foot, 
And the victory is almost complete. And all that Barak has to do is to chase down Sisera. By the time he gets to Sisera, Sisera will already be dead. Here's the thing. In the midst of the story about Barak's victory over Sisera, there's something inserted that doesn't immediately make sense. Why was this piece added about Heber the Kenite? Why was it added to this story? The narrator tells us that Heber the Kenite had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent near the battleground. We don't know why Heber did this. He plays no part in the battle, although his wife, Jael, will soon be a, play a big part in the plot. Sisera, we find out, is fleeing, and he finds his way to the tent of Jael. And for him, this means safety because Heber and Jabin, the king of the Canaanites, are allies. Jael welcomes him into the tent. She gives him something to drink and then allows him to lay down and go to sleep. Then she picks up a tent peg and a hammer and she kills him. Now there's irony involved in this. There's irony because setting up and taking down tents was considered woman's work in that day. And so a tent peg and a hammer were almost like a woman's household appliances. And in that day, death at the hands of a woman was considered particularly humiliating. And so Jael must have arranged this in such a way that, that Sisera's death would be a particularly devastating defeat for them. It also proves that Deborah's prophecy in verse 9 is, is true, where she said to Barak, because of the course you're taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of, an, of a woman. The honor was not Barak's. The honor wasn't even Deborah's. In the end, the honor was Jael's. But ultimately, the honor goes to no human being at all, right? It was the Lord who spoke to and through Deborah. It was the Lord who guided and led Barak to victory. And it was the Lord who delivered Sisera into the hands of Jael. And so I think it's safe to say that on that day, God... Not Deborah, not Barak, not Jael. On that day, God subdued Jabin, the Canaanite king, before the Israelites. God was the rescuer. And so the honor and the glory and the praise goes to him. Now, he chooses to use people, and it's a great privilege to be used by God. But salvation belongs to God alone. And so it's his that is the glory and the honor and the praise. And so with Jabin destroyed, there's again peace in the land. Now, there's a huge difference in the telling of the story between chapter 4 and chapter 5. Chapter 4 and 5 tell the same events from two different perspectives. Chapter 4 is from the perspective of the historian. Chapter 5 is from the perspective of the poet. And it's, it's a song, and it's theological in its nature. Chapter 5 looks beneath the surface of history, and it reveals that God's hand is active and alive and at work through everything that happens. Chapter 4, the Lord is named only in four verses, mostly in those lines where Deborah is speaking. But in chapter 5, he's everywhere. He receives the praise as Deborah and, and Barak sing of the princes of Israel leading their men. In verse 4, as they marched, he was on the march, showing his power through pouring rain. In verse 5, as the people advance down the mountain, he is the one before whom the mountains quake as going to war. This is because he is the true God. The roads were abandoned in Israel because they chose new gods. And so war came to the city gates. Under idol worship, 
Israel fell into oppression. And they even went into a period of social decay. It was every family. It was every man for himself. The only hope lay in Deborah. Deborah who mothered Israel, beginning to restore the social fabric and then prompting willing volunteers among the people to go to war and throw off the oppression. Their actions would really be God's actions. And then in verses 19 through 22 of chapter 5, we see that Deborah and Barak return to that same theme that they were singing of before. The fact that this victory was the Lord's victory. The kings of Canaan fought, but they won no plunder because they won no victory. The Lord who rules nature was fighting against them. Verse 21 tells us how it was that Sisera's chariots became worthless. The God who made the clouds pour down water caused the river to flood, sweeping them away as Barak advanced. This was God's victory. You see, Sisera never would have parked his chariots next to the river if he knew that it was going to rain. This must have been the dry season instead of the wet season. And God told Deborah just where to fight, luring Sisera's army to the place where he could destroy them. So what's the, the lesson of this story for the people of God? The lesson is that God wins. God wins. The victory is God's. And so blessing is to be found in fighting with and for God, no matter the cost, no matter the odds, no matter the risk. God's is the victory. We want to be on God's side. Now this is one of many violent stories that's told in the book of Judges. And it prompts a question about how we are to treat our enemies. Very often in the Old Testament, we see the word speaking hatefully of the enemy. How do, we, how do we reconcile that with Jesus' words in the New Testament when he says that we are to love and to bless and to pray for our enemies? How do we take these two themes and make sense of them? I want to suggest three things. First of all, that God's triumph over evil is part of the gospel message. One day all people will stand before Jesus and give an account for their life. Give an account for whether they accepted him as Lord and Savior. Give an account for their actions during their life. And the New Testament is clear that Jesus should be praised, not just for his forgiveness that's extended because of his death on the cross, not just because of the justification that happens when we come to faith in Jesus, but also for his victory over sin and Satan, and also for the final judgment that will happen at the end of time. Secondly, the coming judgment frees us from needing to see justice done in this life. There will be a vindication of all who have acted rightly, and there will be punishment. There will be punishment for wrongdoing for those who don't. And so we don't need to seek that now. Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 12, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. And because of this, we are free to get going with blessing even those who curse us. But how can we be certain that God is a God who will repay? Well, we can be certain because we see that sin has been judged already on the cross. The cross is not only the place where we are justified, not only the place where those who accept Jesus as Lord and Savior are justified and made right with God, 
But it is also the proof that God does judge, that God does punish sin. The resurrection tells us that there will be a judgment for all whose sins have not been um, paid for on the cross. And so the cross is the proof that God will judge, that God will punish sin. The death and the resurrection of Jesus changes our attitude towards enemies. We want to see justice done. And we trust that it will be done, but it is not to be done by us. So we can pray for, we can bless, we can love our enemies, praying that God would draw them to himself. And because of the cross, we can take on that same attitude as Jesus on the cross as he looked at those who were killing him and said, Father, forgive them. May we have that same heart as Jesus when we are faced with that person who acts against us in ways that cause him to be called an enemy. I want to finish with two thoughts as we come to a finish here. First of all, Deborah was a godly leader. She was perhaps the most godly of the judges of this time period. She was gifted. She had great leadership abilities. But Deborah is not the hero of this story, right? The hero of this story is God. God is the hero of every story of Scripture. Sometimes we wonder why some of the people that God chooses to use seem to succeed in spite of of their own lack of ability, in spite of their own incompetence. And that's the point, right? Success is not based on our abilities. It's not based on their abilities. It's based on God's ability to work in and through them. His abilities become theirs. And that's a reminder to us that our success is based on God doing through us what he calls us to do. And so we will be successful in those things he calls us to. And then secondly, question. Which telling of Deborah's story are we living out? Which telling of Deborah's story are we living out? Now remember, the story of Deborah was written twice. Chapter 4 is from the, the point of view of a historian. It speaks about who did what and who said what and, and what happened as a result. It's primarily from a human perspective, and God is, is rarely mentioned in chapter 4. But the same events are spoken of in chapter 5, and it's spoken from the perspective of the one who has eyes of faith, seeing that, that God is active, that God is alive, God is at work in all the things that are going on. We have a choice of how we live our days. We can stay focused on just what we can see and hear and touch. Just focus on those things that are in the, 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 the physical. Or we can choose to have eyes of faith seeing where God is at work, where God is at work in our lives today. I want to encourage us to do something this week. I want to encourage us to, to spend some time consciously focusing on where God is at work in our lives. And I'd like to suggest that perhaps you set an alarm Alarm on your phone for every hour so that each hour your alarm goes off and, and when it goes off that you pause for just a moment. Pause for a minute or two and, and ask God to reveal where he has been work in your life in the past hour. Look back at the conversations you had, the interactions you had, the, the events of that past hour and ask God to reveal what he was doing in the midst of that. As we do this, as we become more conscious of God's work, we are going to realize that he is more involved in our lives than we ever realized. And as we do that, 
we are going to realize just how important we are to God and just how much he loves us. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for your great love. And thank you for your great mercy. It's a love and a mercy that causes you to, to claim even a sinner like me as your own. Thank you, Lord, that you are active and alive, not just in the times, the biblical times where you are active and alive in the Old Testament and the New Testament times, but you are active and alive today. That you are at work in my life today, in our life today. Lord, give us eyes of faith so that we might see what it is you are doing. And as we see those things, may our faith be strengthened, may our faith grow, may our love for you grow as we realize that you are at work in ways we never realized were possible. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your great love. Thank you for your great mercy. May we be aware of it in every day of our lives. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. 